Friends, what follows is not for the faint of heart. We bring you tales of the paranormal, human wickedness, the curious, and the bizarre. Please, if you continue, proceed with caution and an open mind. We are the Queen City Creeps. Hello and welcome to Queen City Creeps, your new favorite podcast for all things true crime, paranormal, and just generally weird. I am here, as always, with Jennifer. Say hi, Jennifer. Hello. And Shelby. Say hey, Shelby. Hey, Shelby. (laughs) And tonight, subbing in for Michael, uh, we have our friend Joe. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Are you really excited to be here? I am tremendously excited. So as you guys know, normally we do a little bit of a a warm-up before we start digging into serious topics. So my question for you this evening is, have you ever had someone from your past just pop up in a really surprising way? And if so, I want to hear about it. All right. Well, I've, I've got one for this. Uh, I was in a band with, uh, with some of my best friends, honestly, for about five years. And, uh, one of them I'm, I'm good friends with again now, but he had, uh, upset me the way that he, the way that he left. Uh, the, the way I've described it to him is that he decided he didn't want to be an adult. So he moved back to Illinois with his parents uh, because he couldn't hold down a job and a couple other things. And if he hears this and is offended by it, well, he knows the story too, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Adult thing's hard um, sometimes. It is. Anyway, he was the singer in my band for about five years, and he basically left almost overnight. I mean, uh, you know, two weeks no- two weeks' notice is the standard, obviously. That's not true at all. People just kind of bail <laughs> whenever him's still like, music. Is this like a job? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in the sense that, you know, sometimes there was money involved, mostly going out and not coming in. But, I mean, yeah, yeah there was right. a lot of money changing hands. Um, anyway, so he'd been gone for, I, I want to say, like two years at this point, And I hadn't really spoken to him. The one conversation we'd had was this really... I, I'm going to call it a petty conversation where I was still pretty butthurt about the whole thing and he was butthurt that I was butthurt was basically what I got mm-hmm. from it. Was it a patented Shelby shitty comment? Guaranteed it was a patented Shelby shitty comment. <laughs> probably, I love those. Probably a shitty paragraph, if Aww. I'm being honest. He actually showed me the message again not that long ago because he holds on to things longer than I do somehow. Uh, regardless, so... <laughs> That's a good trick to have. <laughs> I, I had just bought uh, the house that you're currently sitting in and I mean, maybe a month before that, and uh, I was drunk. I please hold your surprise gasps. <laughs> Notice um, that there were no surprise yeah. gasps. Well, None. that that hurts my feelings worse than the surprise gasps. Oh, uh, Anyway, so I was drunk, uh, and I get a phone call, and and it's this person, and I look at the phone and go, uh, okay, he's reaching out. I might as well pick up the phone. Um, he says, "Hey, man, what are you doing?" And I said, um, sitting here on my couch drunk. He goes, oh, well, I'm back in Springfield, and I wanted to see if you wanted to hang out. And I was like, eh, I mean, I, I can't go anywhere right now. And he goes, oh, okay, where do you live now? I told him my address, and he goes, oh, hold on. And they knocked on my door about five minutes later. He's, <laughs> he lives a block and a half away from me. Oh, wow. So <laughs> that's that's my surprising resurgence story. And then we got properly plastered that night and pro- probably cried. I don't know. I, Hard telling, really. But. He wouldn't judge you if you cried. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. That's really sweet. But so are you guys friends now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. we're, we're great friends now. Good. You make amends better than I do because I don't at I, all. I drink a lot and try to forget. Okay. Yeah. It's true. Um, 
Mine actually came because you people are crazy and you actually like us. Um, you people. You people as in like our, our friends on social media right. and that listen to this podcast and whatever reason want to reach out and let me know how great it is. But there have been a couple of people and the one that really stuck out um, popped up on my phone one day while I'm sitting on the couch, you know, hanging out with my kid like I do, watching trolls. And I get a, a message from this person on Instagram and I'm like, what the shit? Why is this person messaging me? And he's just like, you know what? I've been listening to your podcast. It's great. I'm obsessed with you guys. Good job. And I'm like, cool. But then I think back to when I was in middle school and I was the young, awkward, not confident and not as articulate as I am now. Um, and I'm sitting behind this guy in class. We're talking to some of our friends and he refers to me as a maybe downy, which is super offensive. And what he meant to say is that I look like I might possibly have down syndrome. Right. So, yep. I was probably 12 or 13 years old and I was heartbroken because I had the biggest crush on this boy. It was like the darkness came in around my face and I'm just like, hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> That's how you remember it. And that yeah. is like, I've told this story to Jennifer and Shelby and probably everybody. And every time, like I kind of get a little teary about it because it's like, was heartbreaking to me. But. Well, at that age. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you're I so self-conscious at that age. Super self-conscious yeah. about like. And My someone appearance. you kind of like, too. It's oh. like that. Just like, oh, yeah. God. It, it jacked with me. Hardcore. So this dude then messages me on Instagram as like a 32-year-old woman. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm awesome. But also thanks for listening to my podcast. And I'm glad you like it. <laughs> and I win in life. I, I win. I win in this Because scenario. I record a podcast in my friend's basement. And you while, like it. While overcoming all odds, apparently. While overcoming all odds. Oh. I, uh, what was great is that I get off this you know, exchange, screenshot it, send it to these guys that are sitting on the couches with me. And I'm like, yeah, because they've all heard this story before. And then also run back to my husband's office. And I was like, remember that guy from middle school? And he's like, the one that thought you might have Down syndrome? I was like, yeah, that was, one. Message me on Instagram, likes the podcast. Was that what the only now? guy from middle school? It was a very traumatic experience. I have a tendency to talk about it a little bit when I'm drunk sometimes. Oh, okay. It was just strange that that, that was first where his mind went. You remember that guy from middle school? Oh, you mean the one that thought you had Down syndrome? The really mean one that thought, yeah, yeah. it was okay. heartbreaking. And I'm sure he doesn't remember it at all. Like, well, I he, think I mean, most, he's probably like a fine person, but it was just like... Most bullies, shitty. though, they're not going to remember what they said to one person, but mm -hmm. the person that got that to them, you know, they remember it forever. Yeah. Yeah. So think about what you say, people yeah. that might be shitty out there. Exactly. No. I refuse. <laughs> but you, Shelby, what you say is not shitty, and you shouldn't stay up at night worrying about it. No. <laughs> he's a good person, though. So you are he's, a good person. So he thinks about the things that he says to people. Yeah. That makes sense. And he's not, you know, a 13-year-old boy. Right. Yeah. Because those guys are assholes. For mm. sure. J-Bo. So the only thing I could really think about about someone popping into you know from the past to now is like whenever I was in college and you know those like all those like guys that like never would talk to you in high school and then like they see you and your profile picture on Facebook with like big boobs and they're like hey <laughs> what are you doing your boobs do look exceptional yeah. exceptional on your Facebook exactly picture, though. so then they just randomly like you would never talk to them in high school mm -hmm. and then they just say hey what are you doing right now? Even though they have no idea that I'm, I was no longer, you know, where I grew up 
You know, I was four and a half hours away. No idea. But they were just thirsty. They were such thirsty. Very thirsty guys. <laughs> and that happened all throughout college. <laughs> but if the, if the booty's worth the drive. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is. It is. <clears throat> Okay, well, I actually need to check out this Facebook picture now because I don't know if I've ever noticed yours or not. But now I'm curious. Well, I mean, it's not just one face. Like, it was just, like, all of them. You can kind of see my boobs. Like, it's well, just how they okay. are. They're big. Your boobs are big. And you do take very flattering Facebook photos to show them off. The tits won't quit. They won't. <laughs> okay. It's your turn. Uh, for mine. Go big uh, or go home. So for mine, um, I-, I lived over on um, Robertson Street, or, right, which is about a block away from South, it's parallel to it. And I was getting home one day. I was about 20 years old. Um, and I had just gotten groceries and I'm getting out of the car and it was a strange neighborhood. Like it had, that neighborhood had a reputation for like the folks who lived around there, like, or the, the renters didn't do background checks. Like it was kind of a Mm -hmm. sketchy place. And so I'm getting out of my car one day, got groceries in tow and I'm kind of a one trip guy, you know, so I've got like eight bags. I'm getting out of the car and I just hear out of nowhere, Hey, white lightning. <laughs> and like, yes. and like, this isn't an unusual like thing in my neighborhood. So I wasn't really thinking anything of it. But then like about five seconds later, Hey, yo, white lightning. And, and I'm just like, what is this? And so I turn around and there's this really big burly black dude coming toward me from uh-huh. the street and he's walking real fast. And he's just like, Hey, Hey. And I noticed this like really shiny belt around his waist, like a wrestling belt. Mm, you know awesome like it's really yeah and so he comes up to me he goes man now i don't know about you we haven't met but when i look in your eyes i see a champion (laughs) and like already you know i was just like oh great like you know (laughs) how how could he see your eyes from a block and a half away i know right you're like like, you're not wrong but this is uncomfortable oh yeah no i was totally on board i was just like oh this is the most flattering like intro ever And uh, and I was just like, oh yeah, well thanks, man. And he goes, but man, you got to tell the world that you're a champion. You got to show them. And I got this belt that tells the world that you are a champion. <laughs> and and I was just like, yeah, you do, man. Like it was like a knockoff, sort of like a dollar store WWE belt, you yeah. know, or something. And and he's just like wearing it loud and proud. And he's like, man, you got to tell the world and. You know, I can give it to you for like three, four dollars, you know, just whatever you need. I don't take much, but you need to tell the world. And and I was like so sold at that point, you know, (laughs) I was just like, yeah, of course I'm going to buy this wrestling belt from this dude. And like, and so I get it on my wallet and I'm like, but I don't have any cash, which is a recurring theme at Uh that point in my life. And I was like, man, I mean, I got groceries, but I don't got anything I can give you. And, um. And he goes, man, that's okay. I'll catch you on down the way. And, like, he, we just sort of parted, you know. And then I went back in and I just thought, well, that was awesome. Did you he know? give you the belt at that point? Well, here's the thing. Two weeks later, I get groceries again. I'm getting out of my car. And out of nowhere, I hear, hey, white lightning. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he moseys down the block and come towards me. And then he says, man, now I don't know you. I don't know about you. But when I look in your eyes, <laughs> I see a champion. And like like verbatim, the, the exact same pitch as before. Like, I don't know if he just didn't remember or, or if it was just, but he was like, he had it down. Like his pitch was spot on. And yet again, he offered me the belt and I didn't have any cash. 
And so I was just like, oh, man, damn it. You know, like, I really want that belt <laughs> And uh, like, at this point in time. And then, I don't know, maybe about a month later, an abridged form of that conversation happened again, uh, where it was just like, hey, White Lightning, you know, and like, uh, same thing. And I didn't have any cash. And then after that, I didn't ever see the guy again for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, man, you know, he, I don't know if he was living across the road from me or what, but... And I've just, like, held on to that story because whenever I need to feel like a champion, I just remember that, like, this dude told me three (laughs) times. But no kidding, like, about last spring, maybe a year ago, I'm at the Walmart on Kearney and uh, Glenstone there. I'm getting my... That's the good Walmart. That's the one I go to. Walmart rules. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I'm getting my oil changed and and serviced and everything. And so I'm just, like, you know how you just kill time when you're, you're, like, you feel like you're in purgatory when your car's Mm -hmm. getting worked on? (laughs) Like, you're just, like, I have nothing to do. There are only so many magazines I can flip through. Well, lo and behold, um, who's in the mechanic shop with that very guy himself? And uh, he had this really, like, frizzy hair. Um, and it was about the same style. It was a little shorter. And uh, and I was just like, hey, man. And, like, because it took me a minute, you know, because it had been, like, what, six years or so since. Yeah. Like, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, the dude. And um, and I'm, I'm, like, not too far from him. And I'm just like, hey, man, like. I don't know if you remember me, but like she used to live over right near Robertson area, and um, and he was just like, yeah, yeah, like uh, right, on, and then he mentioned a couple apartments, and I was like, yeah, yeah, and I was like, man, like I'm, I'm White Lightning, <laughs> and <laughs> and he was just like, oh man, is that you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, like you still got that belt by chance? And he goes, no, nah, man, I sold that thing off, but next time I got a belt, it's coming your way. And I was just like, oh, my God. And hopefully you have cash on right. you whenever That's what I does. told him, actually. I was like, dude, I've got cash this time. He's like, man, let me go find a belt. <laughs> and we, we got to reconnect over that, and it was, like, the most joyful thing because I, I didn't imagine that he was going to remember it, you know, but he was mm-hmm. just a really, like, sweet, funny guy. And uh we just kind of bonded. Like, I was just like, man, he's in my corner. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you're that good of a salesman and you can't sell this belt in between seeing you. I know, right? Like, like what, was it know. just you? Were you the only champion he met over the course of that <laughs> I think he time? met a lot of champions. And I think I was one of any number when we reconnected. Mm-hmm. It was right. just like, I was, I was like one of the generic ones. But, White um, lightnings. Yeah. Exactly. Like, my favorite part is that it was a heavyweight belt. He was trying to sell me the heavyweight <laughs> champion belt. Yeah. And I'm about 135 pounds, you know, so that made me feel extra, like, so that, special. That'd be yeah, really, that'd be really impressive if you actually managed to win them that weight class, too. Exactly. You, know, you just have like, to be fast. <laughs> you got the will of the warrior, Joe. <laughs> you know, what can I say? But <laughs> well, speaking of the will of the warrior and people popping up in unexpected places, Joe has a very interesting story to tell us. Take it away, Joe. Yeah, so there's this interesting story um, of the uh, the Japanese holdouts who were um, isolated groups of uh, soldiers in the Pacific Theater uh, immediately following World War II. Now, uh, some of them didn't hear that the war had ended, which probably occurs in every war. But more interestingly, there were also those who refused to accept the surrender of mm-hmm. the Imperial Army and their dedication and fighting prowess is pretty legendary and so in the immediate aftermath they just kept doing you know like war stuff um what what is war stuff (laughs) (laughs) oh you know like 
raiding villages and just uh, like guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare. Right? Yeah, I mean they retreated yeah. into the jungle and they just you know their survival skills kind of kicked into gear. And there were these really interesting efforts by um, the the government of the Philippines and also the Allied forces and even uh, Imperial Japan was like on mm-hmm. board with trying to get them rounded up. Now some of them. Um, like within like six months or so, some of them had stood down, and then over the next few years, uh, more of them continued to kind of be found and located and sort of reintegrated back into society. But um, there were also those that just kept kind of sinking further and further into this, and um, the most famous of which was um, uh, let's see, Lieutenant uh, Hiro Unada. I believe is how you pronounce his name. You did much better than I could have expected to. <laughs> right. Thank you for sure. Definitely. <laughs> he was discovered. Um, he became something of a legend by uh, the time he was discovered. And oddly enough, there was, a, there was a Japanese tourist whose name I can't remember who found him in a cave in the Philippines and um, spoke to him and said, you know, Lieutenant Donata, don't you know that the war is over? And he famously refused to stand down until he was personally relieved by a superior officer. And this occurred in 1974. Oh, wow. Was, was this the tourist that um, he was a student and he was traveling around? Yeah. And he said he wanted to find the lieutenant hero, whatever his yeah, name is. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and a giant panda and a yeti. Yeah. Right? It, and like in that order. Was in that order is what he saying. wanted. Yeah. That's I a really, that was cool really bucket list, though. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah like, I'm going to find this, you know, mythical soldier and... Uh, and he did, and mm-hmm. yeah, he refused to stand down, and he was discovered with, like, um, let's see, a functioning rifle, like 500 rounds of ammunition, like a couple dozen grenades. I mean, he was, you know, in it. And the government of Japan flew out his retired commanding officer, some admiral of some kind, to give him his orders and, and tell him, relieve him of duty. Um, and he came back to Japan, a hero, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's something really fascinating about... Um, just that kind of dedication uh, and the madness. Like, to me, there's a certain kind of grandeur in that. Like, there, yeah. there's something that I find kind of emotionally moving in that story. And um, it's it's interesting how, I mean, just w- what a pre-built metaphor, you know? Like, fighting a war that you didn't know had ended. Like, that's just like, <laughs> yeah. right, you know? Yeah. Um, and there was a, to kind of connect this to another weird or sort of, something in that realm. Um, there was a, a short story writer, uh, an Argentinian writer named Jorge Luis Borges uh, from roughly the 40s, and I think he passed away towards the end of the 70s. He was a really transformative figure in like world literature. He's considered to be the most influential Latin American writer since like Cervantes. But he wrote um, primarily short stories and poems that sort of, in a nutshell, explored the limitations of, of human perception. And he he wrote a bunch of really innovative short stories that kind of dealt with this and sort of philosophical topics. But also, you know, he dealt with stories about people who were sort of just lost in their own minds. And so he has a story Mm -hmm. called um, uh, Deutsches Requiem, which came out in his first collection, I believe. And it's about uh, just the sort of unrepentant Nazi officer uh, a little bit after World War II, which is itself a lot more kind of like evil like that that short story kind of explores like the banality of evil you know and that, that sort of mm-hmm. idea yeah. um he also has another story uh called funes the memorius about a, a boy that gets thrown from a horse and he gains the ability to like sort of perceive total reality um he gets like a sort of like super perception from that 
And so there are these really like cerebral, but kind of like, it's just, they leave you with this kind of like tingly weirdness. That's not like outright horror, like HP Lovecraft horror, Mm -hmm. but it's a similar vein of just like odd, you know, and really kind of like uh, stunning. And so this particular story about the Japanese holdouts to me, when I first read it, I don't know, it was a few years ago. Um, I just thought, oh, this is basically a, a real-life Borges story, you know? And yeah. That was what I thought of at the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the holdouts in a nutshell, you know? Mm-hmm. It's pretty yeah. interesting. I always thought the Japanese holdouts would be an amazing band name, you know? Yeah, I, <laughs> like, I thought sure. the same thing whenever I realized right? what, what Radio Tokyo was about. I was like, that's actually a great band name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, <laughs> I, I wasted my chance. But. So, so tell me more about this, though. I mean, were they, were any of them combatant when people came across them i mean what, what yeah were we dealing with oh yeah so um they were uh there are stories of quite a few of them you know, attacking local villages and sort of marauding and uh the local military or local like sort of coast guard forces you know mm-hmm. encountering them and, and having engaging in skirmishes of all kinds um and the, the standard you know like a lot of civilians were harmed and this and that um and the efforts by the Allied forces, like there, are, there are stories of um, uh, Allies dropping, or like the Filipino government dropping leaflets saying that the war was over and and putting the date on it, yeah, uh, which I referenced yeah. in the song, and um, and also uh, Unoda or Onada's uh, troop, his group of fighters, they got leaflets with detailed information about their friends and family dropped, mm-hmm. and they studied it and kind of thought about it for a while and tried to decide if it was real or not. You know, like they seriously considered it. They decided it was fake and they kept going. So in, in what world is, I mean, obviously the government has the ability to research your friends and family, but like right. what, where did they think this came from then? I mean, I who, know. Yeah. Who, uh, who's trying to tug at their heartstrings hard enough to get them out of their, out of their cave or wherever they're hanging out to go in and research their family tree. Well, yeah. Um, one of the things that I, cause when Shelby told us what you were interested mm-hmm. in, what you'd be talking to us about today, you know, I went back and of course watched the Archer episode that this is talked about in a oh, lot, which yeah, is yeah, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then also kind of got online a little bit. And I thought one of the interesting things is that, and I'm not really sure, but hero had a group of like six people with him originally. Yeah. And they were terrorizing the villages. Like they were, you know, burning down the rice paddy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were leave like the villagers would leave them food and they would leave these pamphlets there. Like, hey, the war ended in nineteen forty five. I will like, not yeah. I will not tell you again. Seriously. <laughs> <The war laughs> you're totally fine. And it was I think one or two of them left after they'd been out there for six years, you know, and they kind of just yeah. fell off. But you have to think, guys, during World War II, we were dropping propaganda a lot. You know, both sides were. So maybe sure. they just thought it was just Allied propaganda being like, hey, you guys are, we're seriously scared of you. Let's drop some stuff, mess with your mm-hmm. minds. It'll be awesome. And like yeah. uh, Onoda, he was an intelligence officer. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I imagine that, that that kind of thing might have been in his wheelhouse or at least awareness of that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it probably came with a grain of skepticism, everything that he ever saw during yeah, the war. I mean, exactly. being an intelligence officer. So Definitely. That sense, but. And his orders were to continue fighting at all costs, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of that kind of calculus, but also I think within, certainly within at least a couple of years, tops of doing this, like a sort of psychosis had to take over, you know, yeah, just to sure. be able to continue doing it. So you have to imagine. So what, what yeah. would be, I mean, obviously was he the, the commanding officer of those six then I assume? Yeah. He was the leader. Okay. So then, I mean, the people that are 
I mean, presumably sneaky undercover undercover of darkness because you can't just walk away if you've got right. this guy in charge yeah. who refuses mm-hmm. to admit that the war is over. Did any did, again? I don't know the story. I'll, I'll start by saying that I like to walk into this with a with a completely open mind about all these a things. A clean palette, oh, if you will. <laughs> my my mind is a blank slate. That's all that matters. Um, but as far as that's concerned, I mean, were there in any in any circumstances where somebody tried to leave and he figured out about it? I mean, is that what what would have been the repercussion of that, or what was the repercussion of something like that? You know, I, I'm not entirely sure, um, but I think um, I do know one of one of the people in that group did uh, retreat and, and was, or, you know, broke off from the group, and I think was discovered like six months later and stood mm-hmm. down. I, if I remember right, he tried to get a hold of them somehow, yeah. and I mm. and I don't think he succeeded in, in actually uh, getting a hold of them, but. Just to pass the word along that, hey guys, this was this was <laughs> the real deal. This is legit. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's really yeah. over. It's been over for a while. Um, I kind of read a little bit about the memoir that he helped write oh, after yeah. everything, mm-hmm. um, and that when he brought when he came back to society, he brought his original like sidearm that mm-hmm. he had. Um, he still had his military uniform, and then when he left home, his mom had given him a dagger. And told him that if he was captured, that he should kill himself. Mm -hmm. So just, like, that thought process to me, I'm like, okay, this is why. Like, if he had been captured, he would have just killed himself. Right. That's what my mom did for me every morning. She gave me my lunch and a dagger (laughs) and say, now shit goes down. You know what to do. Defend yourself or end it now. Maybe the moral of the story is, like, don't forget your dagger. You know? (laughs) That's what it all comes down to. Is that that the next song you're working on? Yeah, exactly. That's the follow-up, you know? I like it. Yeah. Um, there was so this gentleman we've talk, been talking about is mm-hmm. a Japanese soldier. Um, I was reading about, and I don't know if you know anything about him. He was a volunteer from Taiwan, and he was actually held oh, out six years longer or six months longer. Right? Yeah, um, I forget his name, but yeah, he was um, he was from Taiwan, and I think he was discovered was it in Indonesia, I believe. I uh, think so. Yeah, um, but yeah, he was the. He's the last confirmed, I believe, holdout um, that there is. Although there have been, through the decades, uh, reported cases and kind of... There, the most recent reported case was in 2005. Oh, wow. An 89 and a 90-year-old man were supposedly uh, came out of hiding in the jungle. Although, um, I don't know if there was any... I think that's one of those stories that kind of dropped off, so I don't know if it mm-hmm. actually was true, but... But even if, like, I kind of want it to be true. Like, I, 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 think, yeah. I think we all really. Do. I'm willing to pretend that it's true, even yes. if it's fake. And like, yeah. And but that that's an amazing part too. Is that like, there's this notion of, um, there's almost this ghost quality of that. You know, these these sort of mm-hmm. soldiers of World War II that are still out there, or you know, could have been out there. I mean, you know, there's the one big one that we know about. But then, what about those who we didn't hear about? You know, who, who could have potentially yeah. held out until 1981 or like 93 or something crazy. Right. Or, uh-huh. you know, or are still in hiding and have passed away or whatever the case might be. I mean, yeah. there's yeah. no real way of knowing. It's not like the Japanese government had a great tally of, well, this person is obviously dead because they haven't been around for exactly you well, know, 20 years, whatever the case might be. So, And a lot of them they did think were dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean... Once you've been gone for seven odd years, they're probably like, peace out, guys. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. And also, I mean, like, World War II in scale was so massive and, like, Japan mm-hmm. was so decimated that you wonder about the extent of, like, what recovery efforts were even possible. Like, you know, um, the Pacific yeah. Theater might have just been like, well, kind of cut our losses and 
forget about or not forget about, but you know, like there just might not have been a, a suitable or a sufficient means to to account for these people, and and that was probably part of it too, I imagine. Yeah, you know? sure. If you can get home, awesome. If not, right, <laughs> right. Enjoy if you your find life. Work, you know? Live your life. If you can get home, welcome home. If not, enjoy your cave or, <laughs> or presumably your death. We're not jungle really embattlement, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Right. I just feel really bad for these people that just thought, you know, oh just yeah. keep fighting, keep fighting. Like this is gonna make a difference, and then it was. For nothing. Well, yeah. years and years of fighting for nothing. The guy that was the uh, Taiwanese volunteer, mm-hmm. he came back six months later, and I mean, the hero guy. What mm-hmm. is his last name? Say his last name one more time. It's spelled O N O D A. I think it's either Onoda or Onada. I'm just gonna call him Hero. Yeah. Because <laughs> everybody thought he was a hero. And it yeah. kind of is. Like, yeah, like it's everyone in, in Japanese in Japan was just like, "Hey, you came back. This is crazy." I mean, yeah. he started this group of, of revisionist history. Mm-hmm. I mean, headed it up very visibly within you know the yeah. government. Married a uh, woman from the Philippines, I think, and she mm-hmm. became very popular as well in Japan. But the guy that was a volunteer and that held out for six months longer, like, he kind of got screwed over because he wasn't a Japanese citizen. Yeah. He didn't receive any money, I mean, from the years of his service because of a weird law that had been passed right before he came out. Whereas the other guy, mm-hmm. I mean, lived like a king pretty much. Hmm. And deserved, I mean, deservedly so to a certain extent. Like, he sacrificed a lot for his country. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it's just... The the disparity between the two was so interesting to me. And it, and it's ironic because nationalism was what both propelled them into what they did in the first place. Exactly. And, and then it's also what what did, uh, caused their their fortunes to kind of differ, you know, mm-hmm. in that way. And, and that's really interesting. But yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting how that sort of runs through, you know. And um, th- there's also uh, there's a song by Warren Zevon called uh, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. And it, it's a story song that talks about um, a fictional uh, Danish mercenary named Roland who is uh, conscripted to fight in the Congo Civil War in, in Africa in 65 or 66. Mm-hmm. And he gets betrayed in the song. He, at the behest of the CIA, is betrayed by one of his uh, confidants and then later comes back as the mythical headless Thompson gunner and gets revenge on uh, Van Owen, this other mercenary, and then continues to sort of resurface in Ireland and Palestine and all these different sort of flashpoints of, of the Cold War mm-hmm. at the end of that song. And um, and then for that, like, I, I thought, for at least for me, like, there was kind of a, an interesting... Like, the emotional thrust of that song to me was similar to kind of the emotional thrust of, like, the story of the holdouts, you know. And um, also just Warren Zevon is amazing, so I've got to mention him for that. Well, but, yeah, of course. Um, you know, like, that song to me has remnants of that, you know. It's sort of a Cold War ghost story, whereas this is sort of a living ghost story, you yeah. know. And that's kind of interesting to me. Am I weird to think this kind of ties into, like, Robin Hood to a certain extent? I mean, the guys living in the forest, doing what they think is right. I mean, instead of robbing from the rich and giving the poor. They're <laughs> right. literally burning the food of the poor and taking what they need. But, I mean, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, the, the maybe like outlaws, you know, like just yeah. a renegade. The noble fighters. outlaw, mm-hmm. sort of. Yeah, but, you know, but, like, but unaware that they're now outlaws. That's the thing. I mean, right. it's, it's yeah. not that they're really outside of the realm of the law because what they, the guys that they're operating under was the orders from their government. They just, That's true. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't necessarily see the the Robin Hood connection, but I I see where you went with it. But mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It it seems to me that, you know, the whole rules of war, rules of engagement thing, where does it end? Where, where, sure. do, we, where do we say that, okay, well, what you did is wrong now because the war is over. Well, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. So, so, I'm, so I'm glad to hear that he was treated as a hero when he came back because... Yeah. That could have gone really differently. That that could have been a whole different sort of set of circumstances. Exactly, and in a way, you know, it kind of feels like World War Two was. The, I mean, after every war, there are people that don't get accounted for for whatever reason. You know, mm-hmm. that get that are just not in the tally. But there's something about this time period and this specific, like the modernity of World War Two. I mean, telecommunications weren't exactly where they were at. Like, it's hard to imagine something like this happening now or something as analogous. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Whereas, like, that particular time period, it might have been, you know, maybe one of the last in which this kind of story could, could happen, you know, mm-hmm. um, with the advent of, you know, who knows what kind of military technology exists now. But but you can, like, you can use an infrared map and just figure out who's where, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Right. Um, and that makes it kind of all the more unique, I think. But. Well, and that's something I've been wondering about as, as the story progressed was, so obviously... Te- or technology and communication by the time World War II came around was mm-hmm. much, much better than anything we'd had in, sure. I mean, for decades prior, obviously. Um, are there any stories like this about other wars? I mean, I would think there would have to be, but, you know, you get farther back and it's even harder to keep track of people. Right. I mean, you've, you've got a, a penciled-in roster that you yeah. can start crossing names off of, I guess. But Exactly. I just don't know. Do you Have you ever read anything about additional holdout stories like this or you know um i haven't i mean i've kind of i've thought about it before and i it it is kind of hard to find stuff um i guess there's sort of a cultural now that i think about it uh like heart of darkness or like apocalypse now again in in media that that's kind of a similar analog you know going to find colonel kurtz deep in the jungle at least in in popular in art and, and culture that's like a similar thing but uh, in recent years, I'm not too sure of. I mean, there, there are no like big stories like this that I'm aware of, but but it would be worth like following up on, you know, like that. I've got a Wikipedia rabbit hole to go down now because that, that sounds <laughs> pretty. That's that's what I'm here for, Joe. You know that. I'm going <laughs> yeah, right. to ask just enough questions to make sure you don't know the answer to one of them, so you have something to do tonight when you leave. Exactly. Yeah. So. No, I'm always happy to have some homework. Well, you're, you're welcome. With World War II being so, I mean, it was worldwide. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it. The technology of travel, too, had advanced so much. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of times, like, if you were during the Civil War, like, you have two states to cross and you're home. Like, there would be no real opportunity for there to be a huge ocean between the two. I mean, maybe World War One, but still. So maybe that's part of it, too, is that, like, Mm -hmm. we were just in a completely separate environment than what they'd ever been in before. Yeah, you know, I mean, and just the the sort of unique... um, like, I think you're right. Like, the scale of that war kind of made it possible for something like this to happen, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a way that, that might not have been feasible otherwise, you know? Yeah. Sure. Well, and I mean, more so than, like, let's say the Revolutionary War, where I'm willing to bet that a lot of English troops kind of just stayed here. Oh, yeah, for a- sure. After all was said and done, it's like, no, I I was kind of a coward. I think I'm going to hang right. out here for a little while and not... Just, like, tuck in the British accent, yeah. Oh. You know, yeah, 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 just tuck that deep down inside yourself. <laughs> like, well, and they were, I mean, it was not to the same extent that Civil War was, but it was family versus family, you know what I sure. mean? I guess, the, like, the French and German soldiers that came over mm-hmm. and helped us were, were different, too. But, you know, it was like, I'll just stay with my cousin, 
estranged because of the war and hang out and be American for a while. Right. He, he's, pit, he's pissed, America. but he'll let me crash on his couch. Yeah. So that's all that in the barn. I'll make it up to him. It'll <laughs> be just fine. Talk about it. we, right. That's what we do in my house. Yeah. We just don't talk about just it. Just avoid subjects. All politics. I've had and that's sort really of the beginning of American culture, where yeah. we just don't talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Exactly. And Easter. I mean, every cousin I've ever shot at doesn't want to talk about it. So exactly. <laughs> I, I could definitely see that being a good way to go about it. <laughs> See, whereas in my family, we talk about the BB gun shots. The real shots, not so much. Right. The, See, they're still right. flying in my family. Exactly. So. <laughs> good good choice coming here then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it, um, I think the, the fascinating, th- like, the thing about this story to me that resonates is, um, one, one, like, just the, the, the sheer commitment involved, but. Uh, in a way, and I mean, again, I'm not trying, I wouldn't try to excuse like the, the ravages of war, like the terrible things that happen, but in in a more almost, um, ideological or perhaps philosophical sense, these people were kind of victims in their own right of something, you know, in this case, which is misinformation, not receiving Mm -hmm. the right thing. And, um, that to me is an interesting angle. It's like that, that curious strain of sympathy you feel about. We were kind of talking about that earlier and just the sense of like displacement that leads into madness, you know, and that like some people you can imagine never recovered from, you know, like we, we hear about like, I mean, people come home from wars and then they're broke. And this is a, a very, you know, about the farthest out kind of case you can imagine of that. So, and I think Onoda, um, actually, moved to Brazil because he felt so disenchanted or so um, unable to relate to modern Japan or like what he saw as the erosion of the traditional values that he had fought for mm-hmm. that he kind of, he sought escape elsewhere. He would still come back, but I guess it was just too much for him to take, you know, and that's kind of interesting. Like but all, all Brazil was the place to be though. I mean, what was, what, what is, what is Brazil in this situation? I know, right? They have really great cattle and it's gorgeous there. Actually, I think he became a cattle farmer. There's like See? a like a Japanese expat colony. Go. That's pretty much what you do in Brazil is raise cattle. I thought that was more Argentina. Maybe Pompous I don't. grass. <laughs> right. South American general. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. I'll, right. I'll accept it. <laughs> Where do alpacas fit into this? You can have alpacas there too. Nah. I found a camel on Craigslist today. <laughs> How much was it? Like $4,000. Well, $3,750. I mean, I'm no camel broker, but that sounds like a deal. Well, you have to have two. They're social animals. I'll hang out with them. That's true. (laughs) Okay. I'll go in on a camel with you. All right. Sounds good. (laughs) We got to get that podcast money rolling in, though. Yeah. We got to do a a GoFundMe for a camel purchase. You're just going to keep it in your backyard? Have you seen my backyard? It'll be fine. It's glorious. It's so big. (laughs) You don't even know Shelby's life. Apparently not. I mean, the first time I saw the backyard, my thought was, this is great. It just needs a camel. It just needs a camel. Yeah, yeah. It's more camel is what it is. <laughs> more camel. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to circle back around to something because I am curious about it and it kind of fits with what we've talked about sure. here. Uh, the gentleman that found Onoda mm-hmm. uh, was looking for him. He was looking for a Yeti. And, and He was what looking else? for a, pa- a, great pa- a giant panda okay. and then a Yeti. He wants it in that order. Okay. And so he found Hero in yeah. like, was it four days or four weeks? I don't remember. I'm not sure. I think it might have been like four weeks. Or it so. was like it was not that long, considering yeah. like he's out in the middle of the jungle. No one's ever seen him. We can't bring him back to Japan. So, and then he took a selfie with this guy. <laughs> 
and sent it back to the Japanese government. And he's like, you really need to come get him. <laughs> yeah. Like, I tried to tell wow. him. He doesn't believe me that it's over. Y- you um, say selfie. Wasn't this in 74? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a black and white selfie. Okay, so he just—he was probably one of the first people to figure out you can turn the camera around. Yeah, yeah, he has really long arms. He was the inventor of a selfie. He had yeah. the giant panda take the picture. Dude, he, he didn't he find found the panda until later. Oh, that's true. And right, there aren't pandas in the Philippines either. <laughs> I, d- I just love that. Like, he's he's a hero on two, on two regards. He found this guy. Exactly. He invented mm-hmm. the selfie. Mm-hmm. Did he find the panda? He did. And he found it not very long after he got back to Japan. And what of the Yeti? So he claimed to find the Yeti. Oh, so like, no. and it all happened like boom, boom, <laughs> boom. So he found um, Hero in like seventy four, yeah. And then he found the giant panda before seventy five, and then in seventy six he was trekking in the Himalayas and saw a Yeti. But then, after getting married and doing all the things that a proper young Japanese man does, he um, went back out and continued looking. For the Yeti, like more more proof of the Yeti's existence until he died in 1986 in an avalanche. Did he did he take a selfie with the panda and he was running a <laughs> selfie with the Yeti? Was that why think, he continued looking? I think after he got a panda one? selfie. He did get a panda selfie, and then the Yeti was just blurry in the background. Maybe the Yeti like started the avalanche that felled him. Yeah, because you know, like he, he doesn't like selfies. He just flew too close yeah. to the sun. I, honestly, this guy's pretty brave. I wouldn't have taken a selfie with any of those things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like the the dude who doesn't believe the war's over doesn't seem like a great guy to cozy up to. I'd yeah, rather that's, hang that's out with the panda. Honestly, like Pan- pandas are dicks too. I don't know. They're I, so cute though. I'm sure. I'm sure Hero's adorable. Big. I haven't Hero, seen a picture of the guy. Hero but. was kind of adorable. Okay, there we go. But I saw a baby panda in the Washington D.C. Zoo eating <laughs> a popsicle because they make them popsicles during the summer. Oh my god, it's that's like so cute! Frozen water and fruit in it, and they like hug it, so they get like popsicle juice all over their white bellies. They look like they've murdered someone. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> Best Only you day would think that, like, ever. A, a panda that Noble looks sadness. like it murdered somebody is so cute. I mean, we started a true crime paranormal yeah. podcast. So <laughs> That's valid. Yes, I am that person. <laughs> I will own that. I can't go back now. Yeah. It's out there in the world. I would definitely think it actually eating the popsicle at that time would be very cute. Oh, so cute. And it was like a little so baby adorable. when we went. Mm. So cute. Oh. I wanted to die. <laughs> I wanted to die. It was so cute. You're just like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm just done. I don't need to see anything else in DC. Yeah. It's made it all worthwhile. Perfect. Well, good. No, I was just curious about the fate of Yeti Guy and, and how all that went down. Because that was a really important part of the story to me for whatever reason. Yeah. And it imagine was... if he didn't have that sort of wild hair up his ass to go look for, you know, like we might have never known, you know. About right. He him. might still yeah. be out there. Yeah. I mean, well, I like that Hero, well, he wouldn't still be out there because he died. He's dead. He died in, like, 2014. I'm sure mm-hmm. the jungle is much more nourishing than Brazil. Mm, maybe. He kept calling the tourist kid, like, that young hippie boy whenever yeah. he talked about him. Like, I feel like he never actually used his name. He was just like, <laughs> that young hippie boy came and asked about the feelings of a Japanese soldier in the jungle. I was like, I want to read this memoir. This sounds yeah. heartwarming. Right. I'm um, curious if he knew the word hippie before he came back i've wondered that too i i think oh, yeah. that must have been like a transliteration like it it must have like i've thought about that too because i was like man like how would he know about hippie anything <laughs> right you know? or, or maybe that's maybe there's some japanese idiom that's closer to our modern hippie than oh yeah. you know um because mm-hmm. i was like oh that's a weird he was like tuned in culturally, but he didn't know the war ended. <laughs> you know, like yeah. well, I love Jimmy Hendrix. Maybe but, he you know. secretly knew the war did end, and he was just like, "I really like living in the jungle, 
and now I've been found out, so I have to go back. Well, yeah. I dang it. That. Well, if they but. would have airdropped one of those pamphlets by, you know, the 60s, late 60s or something, and been exactly. like, your daughter's a filthy hippie now, he's like, I'm staying in this damn cave, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I ain't going back. Oh, sure. Um, one thing, too, I wouldn't mind sharing is just the, sort of the connection, like why I wrote this song and how it kind of connects and... and uh, to like to the album that I released and just sort of tying that in, um, mm-hmm. um, just because like it was one of those things. Um, I mean, oh, you know how this goes, Shelby. Like you get a chord progression and it just there's something in it, you know. Sure. Like and that was what I'd I'd read about them like years ago, and it always fascinated me. Like I I teach math and I always find an excuse to to like tell this to a math class. Like I try and find five minutes where like I can make sure you've heard of this cause it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I stumbled on this chord progression and, uh, and I just, I heard like, I just had an image in my mind of like an Island at sunset and like the waves coming on, you know, and just something in my mind and, and that key, the, that set of chords. And I just went, Oh, and then like the words, the, the first lyrics just kind of started coming. And then I knew it was just one of those things, you know? Um, and then you wrote Cheeseburger in Paradise by Jimmy Buffett. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really excited about it, honestly. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and, like, for this for this album that I recorded last summer, uh, Revolving Doors, it, um, the whole, the two kind of themes that it takes on, that those songs are sort of geared towards, are transition and uncertainty. And they're kind of narrative story songs about people sort of coming to terms with a specific moment in their lives or just kind of wondering where they're at, how they got there and so on. And, um, and in most cases, uh, like through the course of those narratives, they end up right back where they started. And that, that's why I called it revolving doors. Cause it was just like, Oh, you know, circle back around. And this to me, like this story of the holdouts was sort of the far extreme of, of that, you know, just ending right back where you, where you started and just sort of going right back into it. And the, the narrative structure of the song kind of like mimics that where by the end of it, they're still just right there, you know, getting ready to fire on a, on a diplomatic convoy, you know? And, um, that was, that was kind of why this song was kind of appropriate. Like why I decided to cut it, you know, for this, this set of songs that I did and so Mm -hmm. on. And I just find those stories interesting, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, of course we asked, uh, we asked a mathematician and musician to come in here and tell us a story about history. So, <laughs> I, seriously, that I mean, I appreciate you doing it because oh, hey. it was it was very interesting. And so I know interesting. You, you had to do a lot of research just to get where you are for the song, for that matter. So. Oh yeah, well, hey, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to hear it. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's a pleasure to be out and and doing this so. in Shelby's basement, hanging yeah. out. Yeah, he never gets to come over here ever. So ever. Pretty, pretty exciting. <laughs> All right, so without further ado, this is Joe Dillstrom performing the song Radio Tokyo from his album Revolving Doors. South Pacific waters with the empire far away We'll go wherever we're told Radio Tokyo, Lubon Island is now under our control 
crops and hid in the fields And set up a base camp that led right down to the sea Another raid on a summer fishing boat Radio Tokyo We moved right through and subdued all the locals We found a leaflet that said it's 1961 With instructions to come out and lay down our guns Allied lies everywhere you go Radio Tokyo Fasting rations and ammo Yozo was the first to see the ships on the right With diplomatic mission written and kanji on the side Don't let them come up from the road Radio Tokyo I've got one shot on G.I. Joe That wasn't Jamie Buffett at all. <laughs> are, you, are you disappointed, Shelby? No, I love that song. I really do. Always a pleasure having you in my basement, Joe. Thank you for hey, that. Thank you, man. You mm-hmm. want to tell uh, the people that might be out there wanting to find your music where they might be able to do that? Oh, sure. Um, so I'm on the, the standard, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. And, and you can hear the album um, on my Bandcamp page and also on Spotify. Uh, Joe Dillstrom, Revolving Doors. Uh, just think of a pickle playing guitar, and you got my my name. So yeah, hope you check it out. <laughs> and we'll post all that on our social media oh, as well. Be. Cool. So perfect. It was great. That was really awesome. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for being our first musical guest. I yeah. couldn't think of anybody better to do this the first time around with. Anyway, mm-hmm. thanks. Yeah. So. All right, awesome. Well, guys, that's it for us tonight. We are the Queen City Creeps. Check us out on social media. Or if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything you heard tonight, hit us up at queencitycreeps at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. Bye.